No, nobody knows what Soviet Russia and its communist international organization intends to do in the immediate future. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. In February 1956, the time of this episode, it had been just a smidgen less than 10 years since Winston Churchill gave that speech warning of the Soviet Union and coining the phrase Iron Curtain. And it had been a little over 10 years since the end of World War II, when the world was left in chaos. The Soviet Union's advancing armies had allowed it to occupy most of Eastern Europe, while the whole continent was on the verge of collapse because of the ravages of war. Communist uprisings were springing up all over. Russia, our World War II ally, was suddenly the new enemy, and a red scare settled over the Western nations. A civil war sprung up in Greece in 1946, running until 1949, with the communists finally falling to the nationalists. On April 16, 1947, Bernard Baruch gave his speech in which he coined the term Cold War. In 1948, former government official Alger Hiss was accused of spying for the Soviets. Also in 1948, in the midst of the carved-up occupation zones of Germany, the Soviet Union instituted the Berlin blockade, cutting off West Berlin from the Western Allies. The United States responded with the Berlin Airlift, flying in food, water, and medicine to the residents of West Berlin for nearly a year until the Soviets finally pulled the blockade. During this time, in 1949, the American, British, and French zones merged together to become West Germany. Responding to that, the Soviets declared East Germany later on in the year. At around the same time, Mao Zedong declared the People's Republic of China as the communists beat the nationalists in the Chinese Civil War. And just a couple of months before that, the Soviet Union set off their first atomic bomb. In 1950, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were arrested and charged with passing atomic secrets to the Soviets. They were convicted in 1951 and executed in 1953. That period is also the time of the Korean War, in which the United Nations sent troops to South Korea to defend it from the invading North Koreans who were supported by the Soviets and China. And it is shortly after that that the McCarthy hearings begin. Of course, Joseph McCarthy, senator from Wisconsin, was one of the main instigators of the Red Scare back in 1950 when he declared that he had evidence of communists working in the State Department. But it was in 1954, in investigating the Army, that he ran up against Joseph Welch, counsel for the Army, who famously said to him, Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency. Leading to McCarthy's downfall soon after. It is in this atmosphere that our story takes place, as an American reporter finds herself in danger of arrest by an Eastern Bloc country in spite of her safe conduct pass. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and the Pie Lady gives this episode a rating of while Jack Seabrook hasn't bothered to cover it yet, so it looks like we're on our own. If you're looking for me to tell you that the pie lady is wrong, or that Jack has missed a trick by not covering it, I'm not sure I can. Still, let's give it a thorough going over and see what we think. 
So here's Hitch to start with. He wears an eye patch and he stands at a pool table. He has a cue stick in his hand and he's using chalk on the cue. He puts the chalk down and then as he talks, he puts down the cue, which leads to the perhaps obvious gag. Oh, good evening. You know, uh, this came as somewhat of a surprise to me. I was under the impression that all pool tables were kidney shaped. I guess that's only true in Hollywood. Our story tonight will be in a somewhat different vein. It is a tale of mystery and intrigue on a transcontinental express. It is called... The title seems to have slipped my mind. It's... Um... A man walks in wearing an overcoat and carrying what I think is a Q-stick case. And he says... You've uh, dropped your cue. He points with great significance, at the top of the cue-stick case, hands it to Hitch, and exits. Hitch watches him go, then looks back at the camera and shrugs, and unscrews the cap on the end of the case, where he finds a slip of paper. Looking left and right, as if this is a great secret, he unrolls the paper and reads it. The title of tonight's play is Safe Conduct. He looks off stage right to where the man had exited and says, Thank you very much. Now, I've gotten so used to truncated versions of the intros and outros that I expected there was something more, particularly since Hitch seems to be about to say something else as the scene fades on him. But according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, no, that's it. We got the full intro this time. Now, it looks like we can sail right into the start of the episode from here, but not so fast, because we first want to look at Charlie Hall, who is the man who brought in the Q-Stick case. He was born in Birmingham, England, and he left school at the age of 15 to assist his father as a carpenter, but he supplemented that by doing comedy in the music halls and clubs in the Midlands. When he was 16, he signed up with the Fred Carnot vaudeville troupe, the same troupe which gave us Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel. And he left England in 1920 to go to America, intending to get work as a carpenter. Instead, he ended up in films, usually acting as a comic foil to such stars as Buster Keaton and Charlie Chase. But he is mainly known as being the little nemesis to Laurel and Hardy in almost 50 of their films. Here he is in Laurel and Hardy's Laughing Gravy. Where's that dog? What dog? You know what dog. I heard it barking. <laughs> My friend Mr. Laurel has the hiccoughs. Here he is in The Music Box, a Laurel and Hardy classic in which Stan and Ollie carry a piano up a very long flight of stairs. Can you fellas carry that piano all the way up these stairs? You didn't have to do that. You see that road down there? All your head. All you had to do was to drive around that road to the top here. And finally, here he is at five feet, four and a half inches tall, still convincingly playing a college student at the age of 40 in a chump at Oxford. That's one thing we won't tolerate in Oxford. Snitching. 
He also had small roles as a member of the crew in King Kong in the 1944 remake of The Lodger, along with Cyril Delevante, whom we saw murdered in episode 19, The Derelicts, and in the Charlie Chaplin film Limelight. He worked as a carpenter on the Hal Roach studio lot between roles, and by the mid-1950s, with his health declining, he returned to his carpentry skills, and he took a job as a prop maker at Warner Brothers. Charlie Hall died in 1959 at the age of 60. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. So here's Safe Conduct. First broadcast on February 19th, 1956. Starring Claire Trevor. Co-starring Jacques Bergerac. Written by Andrew Salt and directed by Justice Addis. Now, like Peter Lawford in Episode 9, The Long Shot, Claire Trevor gets her own title card here. And she was a pretty big deal. She was, after all, an Academy Award winner for Best Supporting Actress. And we'll get back to her a little bit later. But right now, let's take a quick look at Justice Addis and Andrew Salt. Actually, there's not much to say about Justice Addis, since we've seen him before, directing two previous episodes, Salvage, Episode number 6, and A Bullet for Baldwin episode number 14. He has seven more episodes, and his next is Nightmare in 4D, episode 16 of season two. Now, as I mentioned, Jack Seabrook has not covered this episode yet, but here's what he said about Andrew Solt in a review of a later Solt teleplay. Andrew Solt was born in Hungary and had some success there as a playwright until he emigrated to the United States in 1939. He landed in New York, but headed west to Hollywood the next year to write for the movies. He wrote films from 1942 to 1960 and TV shows from 1954 to 1961. He is credited with teleplays for three episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and none of them is based on a published story. His most famous screenplay is for the Bogart film In a Lonely Place. I have been unable to find any short stories or novels by Salt, so it appears he just wrote for the screen once he came to the U.S. Other Salt screenplays include Joan of Arc and the 1949 Little Women, and his work appeared on Rheingold Theater, General Electric Theater, Ford Television Theater, Lux Video Theater, and Schlitz Playhouse. On TV. His last screenplay seemed to be for the German, Italian, and Mexican cinema. His last IMDb credit is for an episode of the TV series Miami Undercover in 1961, although he lived until 1990, dying at the age of 74. He was the uncle of the producer, director, writer, also named Andrew Salt, whose main focus is rock and roll documentaries. Now, as Jack said, he wrote three Alfred Hitchcock Presents teleplays altogether, or co-wrote in the case of the other two. His next is The Legacy, episode 35. This episode takes place on a train. And what better way to establish that than the good old establishing shot of a train with the sound of a train whistle? In this case, the whistle segueing into the sound of a manual typewriter as inside the train, in her own compartment. Reporter Mary Prescott, played by Claire Trevor, works on her story. There is a knock at the door. 
Entree. And in walked two men, the conductor, played by John Banner, and some sort of officer, played by Peter Van Eyck. I suppose that the conductor's uniform is pretty standard, but the officer's uniform, with its tunic flap, double rows of buttons, a belt that cinches around the outside of the jacket, and a cap with some sort of star on it, looks very much like a Soviet or East German uniform. No country is ever specified, though we do soon learn that it has a border with West Germany. Excuse me. Tickets, please. Oh, yes. Tickets? Passport? Letter of safe conduct from President Stoska. Well, aren't you going to read it? It tells all about me and why I'm in your country. I know perfectly well why you're here, Miss Prescott. You're to write articles about our country for the American newspapers with the approval of President Stoska himself. I have a copy of the latter here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Dining car is offered. Have you enjoyed your visit here? Yes, I had a marvelous time. I was shown every courtesy. I'm sorry you're leaving us so soon. You'll get into Furtborg at midnight. Get into where? Furtborg? Is that a real place? So again, as with the officer's uniform, we're talking about East Germany here without talking about East Germany. And of course the train's getting in at midnight. All ominous things take place at midnight, right? But Mary should be fine because she has that safe conduct pass from President Stoska. The officer knows all about it, and he even sticks little stickers on her luggage to let the immigration people know that her luggage doesn't have to be searched. As the officer turns to leave, he encounters another man in the train corridor. Oh, Jan Gubak. I didn't know you were in the train. incognito, comrade. I see. Officer, what is his name? Is he one of your movie stars? Oh, no, ma'am. He's one of our great national heroes. Oh, he certainly is popular. Back at the station there, there was a crowd of people around him, children. You see, he's the captain of our national soccer team. It was he who won us the world championship last year in Switzerland. Oh, I see. He's really considered the greatest soccer player alive today, even according to your capitalistic sports commentators. And once you get to the capitalistic whatever, you know you're in a 1950s Cold War TV episode. With that phrase, and with the history of the last 10 years behind us, the 1956 audience is probably waiting for this smug communist officer to be taken down a peg. And just in case we wouldn't be feeling that way with just the comment, the camera switches to a shot of Mary Prescott with a very dubious look on her face to steer us in that direction. Now, being a good all-American 1950s reporter, Mary is smoking a cigarette during that scene, and the scene dissolves to another scene where Mary is smoking yet another cigarette. So we know a little bit of time has passed, and we get another blast of the train whistle and another knock at the door. Come in. Miss Prescott, may I come in? Yes, come in. This is Jan Gubak played by Jacques Bergerac, she invites him to sit down, which he does on the bench opposite her. Now, earlier, when we had the scene with the conductor and the officer, they exerted their authority just by standing over her. So, although they were both eminently polite, they still clearly were in charge. Now, as Jan sits opposite Mary, he also seems to tower over her, first in a two-shot, where he's just larger than she is, and then in a camera shot over his shoulder, so that she seems to shrink in comparison to the large back of his head. So, 
in spite of her prestige, in spite of her safe conduct pass, Mary is in the vulnerable position here. She's a stranger in a strange country, and she's a woman amongst very authoritative men. And she is about to be served up a story by Jan. You have many clothes. Just about average, I'd say. Do you have many stockings, too, and uh, much lingerie? Hmm? I beg your pardon? Well, I, I would like to buy a pair of stockings, or perhaps a slip or something, if you would be kind enough to sell it to me. You know, I hardly think they'd fit you. <laughs> well, that's not for me. You see, I am on my way to Munich, where my sister is in the hospital. And I wanted to buy her something before getting on the train, but all the stores were closed. I forgot it was a national holiday. So now I have a 300 kronen in my pocket and no gift for my sister's Inca. Well, can't you buy something in Munich? Well, I will have no money in Munich. You see, uh, we are only allowed to take 100 kronen out of the country. And if I have more, then I must leave it with the customs office until my return. Yes, I forgot your strict border regulations. Oh, yes. Rules and regulations, permits and questionnaires. That's all governments are for, to make our life more difficult every day. I like your honesty, but don't you think it's dangerous to criticize your government? Oh, I know. Everybody keeps telling me to keep my mouth shut. But I am not afraid. Not as wrong as I am the captain of the national soccer team. So, how much money is a Cronin anyway? Once again, this is a term that I think is invented for this episode. It sounds like money. There is a crone and there is a Croner, but I'm not sure there's a Cronin. Jan is taking 300 Cronin with him, but he knows he can only take 100 into the country with him. So why does he have the 300 Cronin? And again, how much is a Cronin? If he can't even afford to buy stockings with his 100 Cronin, how is he going to spend any time in West Germany at all? It all sounds very suspicious. But Mary accommodates him, finding a brand new pair of stockings in her suitcase. Her price for them? One picture of yourself in your soccer uniform with the inscription to Mary Prescott. Thanks for the stockings. But now Jan has 200 Kronen he still can't take with him into West Germany. So he offers to buy Mary dinner on the train. We get another one of those shots of the train going along. And then we move into the dining car, where we get a close-up of 10 salt and pepper shakers arrayed on the table representing the men in a soccer match. There are toothpicks stuck into croutons to set up the goal. And as Jan tells the story of his great victory in the soccer match, the camera pulls back to show the conductor and a waiter taking in every word. And there I was, with one minute to play in the game and a 3 to three score. I found an opening between the Argentine center and the inside left. Seeing two Argentine halfbacks moving up, I quickly passed the ball to my outside right. Ben Dukovic, he carried the ball to the 11-meter line, but he was too far out, so he passed the ball back to Jan. He knew the world championship depended on his next move. He did not take any chances. He maneuvered the ball with his head into the goal, landing in the net with the ball himself. <laughs> Okay, so they were playing Argentina in the final, and Jan won the match by landing in the net with the ball. Everybody seems to know this as a fact, so I suppose it probably happened. But it seems as unlikely as Jan's story as to why he has 300 kronen that he can't spend, or 
Another diner's comment that... Of course, we found a vaccine against polio years ago. It all seems designed to make all of these people look a little bit foolish. And for those of us in our 1950s living rooms watching to feel a little bit superior. But I'm getting a little bit ahead here with the other diner. Let's step back a little bit and see how he introduces himself. Now that the game is over, may I salt my chops? Oh, sorry, of course. Thank you, madame. Oh, allow me to introduce myself, Professor Mihail Klopka. How do you do? My name is Mary Preston. Oh, I know your name, madame. After your visit to our president, you're as famous as Comrade Gubak. From the look that Comrade Gubak gives him, he is not at all pleased by this interruption. But is that because he actually wants to now spend time alone with Mary? Or is there something suspicious about this professor? It doesn't help the professor's cause that after first saying he wanted to salt his chops, he now says he's had enough to eat. The polio comment doesn't help much either. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. You would both do me a great honor if you would permit me to buy you an after-dinner liqueur. Thank you, we have had our liqueur. Uh, with your permission, comrade, may I have a few words with our illustrious visitor from America? I uh, specialize in medical research. I'm on my way to Munich to attend a convention uh, where we will hear a report on your new polio vaccine. Oh, yes. Your dinner is getting cold. Thank you, comrade, but I've had enough. Of course, we found a vaccine against polio years ago. Oh, did you? Why do you look so surprised? Don't you believe we have such a serum? Of course I believe you, but, um, well, if you've had this serum all this time, uh, how is it that you never shared it with the rest of the world? Think of the lives you could have saved. I fully agree with you, madame. But for a long time, that was not our policy. Jan quickly breaks this up and takes Mary back to her compartment. Before we join them there, let's look at the three men who had speaking parts in the dining car. The waiter was played by Ralph Manza. According to Wikipedia, Ralph was a pre-med student at the University of California in the early 1940s. Then he was drafted into the Army during World War II, where he served as a medic until he was assigned to an acting troupe. Now, I don't know how that works either, but that's what it says. That got him into acting, and this small role is very early in his career. In fact, it's only his third IMDb credit. But his career blossoms in the 60s and 70s, and he works steadily until his death. You can see him in episodes of Highway Patrol, 77 Sunset Strip, McHale's Navy, Perry Mason, Gomer Pyle USMC, Gunsmoke, Get Smart, and My Three Sons in the 50s and 60s. And he's in Policewoman, Heart to Heart, Chico and the Man, Barney Miller, Benson, Simon and Simon, Night Court, Newhart, Seinfeld, the Nanny, and Friends in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You can find him in Honey West. Putney, when did you get hooked on karate? Oh, that hurts. Oh, helps kill time between readings. Mm -hmm. uh, breaks up the day. Yeah, and a few bones, too. In Batman, as the Catwoman's henchman, Felix. Felix, what about the delivery? Smooth as cream, made it without a hitch. Good. And in 17 episodes of Banachek, as Banachek's chauffeur and assistant, Jay Drury. Banachek, don't think I'm being noisy, but uh, would you mind telling me what you're doing? I don't know. Did you ever get a funny urge to dig? Never. He had a small role in the ventriloquist Twilight Zone episode we mentioned last time, The Dummy. Good night, Mr. Atherson. Good night, Ralph. 
You're not gonna leave me in a stuffy old trunk, are you? Was there something, Mr. Etherson? Did you say something? I said, good night, that's all. Good night. He's in the Night Gallery episode, The Ring with the Red Velvet Ropes. That was Curly on the phone. He had to take Big Dan to the hospital. I don't know, something about bone splinters. Big Dan? Yeah. They got him on the operating table right now. But I was just talking to him. Huh? Hey, don't look at me like that, Max. I'm telling you, Big Dan was just standing there. And in the 80s Twilight Zone episode, Cold Reading. This you're gonna love. Huh? Voodoo fetish. For the Leopard Queen's ritual dance. <laughs> I paid a pretty penny for it, I'm telling you, but it's worth it. It's, it's the real McCoy. But possibly his most memorable role is a 10-second bit in Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles, in which he plays the actor dressed as Hitler, having lunch in the commissary, who says, They lose me right after the bunker scene. This is Ralph's only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Ralph Manza died in 2000 at the age of 78. As I already mentioned, John Banner played the conductor, and he was born in 1910 in Vienna, which was then the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Banner was Jewish, and when he was 28 years old, the union between Nazi Germany and Austria took place. He was on tour in Switzerland with an acting company, so he never returned to Austria during that time and emigrated to the United States as a political refugee. He didn't know any English, but soon after he arrived, he was hired to MC a musical review, and he had to learn his lines phonetically. Eventually learning English, his accent, as IMDb puts it, ironically meant that he was typecast in several films as Nazis during the 1940s decade. He survived the war playing the same villains who were murdering every member of his family who had been left behind in Austria. All of them perished in concentration camps. He was the only survivor of his biological parents and siblings. During the war, he played Nazis in The Moon is Down, The Fighting Gorillas, This Land is Mine, and They Came to Blow Up America. After the war, he appeared in six episodes of Rocky Jones' Space Ranger. He's in the Whistler episode, Fatal Fraud, the One Step Beyond episode, The Peter Herko Story, the thriller episode, Portrait Without a Face, and the Adventures of Superman episode, The Man Who Made Dreams Come True. The same episode that I mentioned in my review of The Derelicts when I was talking about Cyril de Levante. In fact, here's the same clip I played, only extended a little bit longer. Jeepers, Your Majesty, why do you wear the rabbit's feet? For luck, of course. And these are good luck charms, made many thousands of years ago. And you really believe in them, Your Majesty? Certainly, Mr. Kent. What I do, I do for my country. In fact, that's the only reason I go to bed at all. So as I can have my dreams. And you actually govern your country by these dreams? Certainly. There's no other way, Mr. Kent. It's time for your nap, Your Majesty. Of course. I would like to thank you, Ma... Will you thank His Majesty for his time? His Majesty goes to work right away. So I see. He was in the film Operation Eichmann, starred in the TV series The Chicago Teddy Bears, 
and appeared in episodes of The Partridge Family, Alias Smith and Jones, Mr. Ed, The Man from Uncle, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Oh, and one more sitcom for which he still remembered. The third person of our dining car trio is Werner Klemperer, who plays the professor. He was born in Cologne, Germany. His father was the orchestra conductor Otto Klemperer, and his mother was soprano Johanna Geisler. The family emigrated to the United States, where Otto became the conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Now, like John Banner, Werner Klemperer often was stuck playing Nazi roles. He is also like Banner in Operation Eichmann, only he plays Eichmann. Here he is with Ruta Lee, whom we saw in the Cheney vase. You really have money? Jewelry? Gold? Enough for a long time, for both of us. Well, thank God you got smart before it was too late. I have stolen nothing. I have taken only what is necessary for the cause, not for myself. Any self-respecting man could do no worse under the circumstances. I am not ashamed. Ashamed? Adolf, it's wonderful. He plays Emil Hahn in the Playhouse 90 version of Judgment at Nuremberg. I do not evade the responsibility for my <coughs> actions. Germany was fighting for its life. Certain measures were needed to protect it from its enemies. I cannot say I'm sorry we applied those measures. We were a bulwark against Bolshevism. A bulwark the West may yet wish to retain. And then reprises that role in the film version. Now, if you're an actor with a Germanic accent, other than playing Nazis, you might find yourself playing things like vampires, as Werner Klemperer did in the Night Gallery episode... The funeral. Now then, the name of the deceased, if I may ask. Asper? Oh, relative. Uh, me? Oh, pardon me, sir. I thought for a moment there that you said uh, me. And if you're not playing Nazis or vampires, you may find yourself playing psychiatrists, as Werner does in Alfred Hitchcock's film, the wrong man. What's wrong with Rose, doctor? Is it her mind? Yes, it is, Mr. Balistrero. How serious is it? Well, at the moment, her mind is in an eclipse. She doesn't see anything as it is. And she blames herself for everything that has happened to you. But she wasn't to blame for any of it. Of course not, but she thinks she was. And she believes this so strongly that it darkens the whole world for her. She sees great lurking dangers everywhere, and she thinks she's brought them on you. After his father died in 1973, he expanded his roles into opera and Broadway musicals. In 1987, he appeared as Herr Schultz in the Broadway revival of Cabaret, which earned him a Best Featured Actor Tony Award nomination. Now, what I'm pussyfooting around here is that both John Banner and Werner Klemperer are best known for Hogan's Heroes, a 1960s television program with the strange idea of turning a Nazi prison camp into a situation comedy. They played Sergeant Schultz and Colonel Klink, respectively, and they were both sensitive to the controversy of taking such roles. 
John Banner was quoted as saying, There is no such thing as a cuddly Nazi. Maybe Goering was cuddly to his wife. He wasn't cuddly to the city of Rotterdam. Schultz is not a Nazi. I see Schultz as the representative of some kind of goodness in any generation. And Werner Klemperer only accepted the part on the condition that Klink would be portrayed as a fool who never succeeded. Cigarettes, sardines, chocolate bars. You live better than Goering, and you're twice as big. <laughs> but it is against regulations to fraternize with the prisoners or take things from them for any reason whatsoever. Yes. Put I... yourself on report. What happened? Each character had a catchphrase that endeared them to the audience and that they ended up using on other programs at other times. For Sergeant Schultz, it was... I know nothing. Nothing. And for Colonel Klink, it was... In these guest appearances, the actors appear as the character. For example, in the Lucy Show episode, Lucy and Bob Crane... Bob Crane, who played Hogan, appears on the show as Bob Crane. He and Lucy end up making a World War I film. But when John Banner steps in for a brief cameo, he doesn't appear as Banner. He appears as Sergeant Schultz. And listen to the reaction he gets. And when Werner Klemperer gets to do one of those cameos on Batman, when he sticks his head out the window to talk to Batman and Robin, who are climbing up a wall, he doesn't appear as Klemperer. He appears as Colonel Klink. Colonel, what are you doing here in Gotham City? I am looking for an underground agent. One of ours or one of yours? And why the exposition hall at the Coliseum? Who knows? You never know where you might find one. Be careful not to get picked up. Chief O'Hara can be very tough with aliens incognito incognito with my monocle well say hello to colonel hogan for us it's a wonder he hasn't tried to borrow your bat robe to pull another one of his escapes john banner died on his birthday in 1973 at the age of 63 so he wasn't around to do more of these kinds of appearances Werner klemperer died in 2000 the age of 80. So he was around to do things like the 1993 Simpsons episode, The Last Temptation of Homer, in which he played Homer's guardian angel. Though according to the episode's DVD commentary, when he appeared, he had to be given a quick reminder of how to play Colonel Clink. Who are you? Homer, I'm your guardian angel. I've assumed the form of someone you would recognize and revere. Sir Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac who? Oh, very well. <gasps> Colonel Clink! Did you ever get my letters? I'm not actually Colonel Clink. I'm just assuming his form. <laughs> Did you know Hogan had tunnels all over your camp? <laughs> Homer! Werner Klemperer is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Crystal Trench, episode two of season five. 
John Banner appears one last time in Murder Case, episode 19 of season 2 of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. So now let's return to Mary Prescott's train compartment with Mary and Jan as things start to get complicated. They have a bottle of champagne on ice, and Jan pours them each a glass, and they toast each other. They make a dinner date for the next day in Munich, and then Jan makes his move. He pulls out a little notepad, writes something on it, and goes over to Mary's bench to sit beside her, handing her the note. This is the name of the hospital where Zinka is. Zinka, go back. If they should take me off the train at the border, you call her and tell her what happened. Why should they take you off the train? Because of this. It belongs to my mother from the old days when we were rich. It's a beautiful watch. Yes. We are not allowed to take valuables out of the country. But Zinka needs money for operation. Well, they, they probably won't search me too closely. But if they undress me, I'll be arrested. Dress you, they, they wouldn't do that. It is done quite frequently. It's horrible. Why do you hide it in your shoe? I have, uh, I have thought of everything. Shoe is the safest. Por favor! Por favor! A passport identification papers ready! Let me have that watch. No, no, I cannot. Give it to me. Look, I'm not running any risks. I have a safe conduct letter from your president, and you see those stickers? They mean that my luggage will not be opened. But there is no guarantee of that. If the customs officer tells you to open it, you have to open it, sticker or no sticker. Yeah. All right, then, I, then I'll wear it. And with my other jewelry, they'll never notice it. And she is wearing a big bracelet with lots of baubles that looks like some sort of manacle. So she takes the watch. Jan kisses her hand, says... I had forgotten how kind people can be. And he leaves her compartment. So the moment comes when the officer, whom we saw before, the customs inspector, and a soldier enter Mary's compartment. You entered with $750 in Travelers' checks. Yes. How much are you taking out? $400. I was only able to spend uh, $350 in your country because my host was so generous. I will not ask you to open your luggage, madame. You are not taking out gold, silver, platinum, precious or semi-precious stones, other than the jewelry you brought with you. No, I, I can't afford to buy expensive jewelry. She's lying to you. The diamond watch on her wrist is not hers. She's trying to smuggle it out of the country. Wait a minute, what? That's a plot twist that I didn't expect. But before we get back to that, let's look at the actor who's playing the customs inspector. And while we're at it, let's look at Peter Van Eyck, who plays the officer, too. Constantin Shane plays customs officer Drevich. And he was born in the 1880s in the Russian Empire as Konstantin Veniaminovich Oikonitsky, the son of Veniamin Oikonitsky Nikulin, a Jewish actor. He intended to join the Moscow Arts Theater, but World War I intervened. And then eventually, he fought in the White Army against the Red Army as World War I led into the Bolshevik Revolution. He immigrated to the United States in 1928 from Berlin and was listed at the Port of New York as Konstantin Schein, 
Constantin first appeared in American films in 1938 with Bulldog Drummond in Africa. His credits include Charlie McCarthy Detective, For Whom the Bell Tolls, None But the Lonely Heart, The Seventh Cross, with Spencer Tracy. I'm going to give myself up to the Gestapo. It's the very, very, very cleverest thing to do. Don't be a fool, I'll tell you. What of it? It won't be so bad to have it over with. Do you like your life? What are you struggling to stay alive for? What for? Better be dead and rotting and not have to see men's inhumanity to men. And Orson Welles' The Stranger. I have a message for friends, Kendra. From the old heist. It, it is forbidden. I command you in the name of that authority. Later, he appears in two Outer Limits episodes. Obit. Why did I write in the dead of night with the curtains drawn? Well, how could anyone ever know you wrote those letters, Doctor? They know. They know everything. They know what you say in your sleep, in your bathroom. And everywhere rumors, fears. Cypress Hills is just like a ghost town. People whisper in their own houses. Husbands distrust their wives. And nobody laughs. And the duplicate man. Yes, Mr. James. Did you open the cellar door? I heard the stranger frightening sound. I told you I didn't want you to ever go in there. I just thought that... uh... You're not supposed to think. You're supposed to obey my orders. He's in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Flight to the East, episode 25 of season three. And right around that same time, he appears as Pop, the bookstore owner, in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Oh, yes, I remember. Carlotta. The beautiful Carlotta. The sad Carlotta. Well, what does an old wooden house at the corner of Eddie and Goff Street have to do with Carlotta Valdez? Oh, it was hers. It was built for her many years ago. By whom? By, uh... By, uh... Now, the name I do not remember. A rich man, a powerful man. Constantine Shane died in 1974 at the age of 85. Peter van Eyck was born Goetz van Eyck in Germany. While studying music in Berlin, he had a relationship with cabaret singer Jean Ross, leaving her pregnant when he moved to Paris. It was left to author Christopher Isherwood to pretend he was the father and arrange for the abortion. Isherwood later used this story for his novella Sally Bowles, which was later turned into the musical Cabaret. Peter Van Eyck eventually ended up in New York, where he earned a living playing piano in a bar, writing various cabarets and reviews some with Aaron Copeland. He became a stage manager and arranger for Irving Berlin, and he worked with Orson Welles' Mercury Theater as an assistant director. He first went to Hollywood and worked as a truck driver, but eventually hooked up with Billy Wilder, who cast him as a German officer in Five Graves to Cairo, along with Constantin Shane. This began Peter's career playing German officers and Nazis, even though he was staunchly anti-fascist, which is one reason why he left Germany to begin with. A familiar story by now. But he appears in Hitler's Children, The Moon is Down, Edge of Darkness, 
Action in the North Atlantic, Hitler's Mad Men, and on and on and on. He gained a measure of international fame as one of the truck drivers transporting nitroglycerin in the film La Salaire de la Peur, known in the U.S. as The Wages of Fear. Oh, I probably should have mentioned that he speaks French in that film. He also has a noteworthy role in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Who sent you? Control? Smiley? No one sent me. They're looking for me, don't you know? When did you last see Smiley? I've never met Smiley. Where'd you go after lunch with Ash? Chelsea? I know the vaguest recollection. I had two scotches and half a bottle of punishing Greek wine. And while he seemed stuck in English-language films playing Nazis and villains, he was a popular leading man in German films. Peter van Eyck died one day before his 58th birthday in 1969 in strange and tragic circumstances, succumbing to septicemia from what Wikipedia calls an untreated, relatively minor injury. This is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance. Okay, now where were we? That's right. Jan Gubek has just burst into Mary's compartment and shocked everybody, including us, by saying, She's lying to you. That diamond watch on her wrist is not hers. She's trying to smuggle it out of the country. Mary's response is the same as ours. But you're the one who gave it to me. Except that Jan then very logically says, Oh, that's ridiculous. If I gave it to you, would I report you? The only explanation seems to be what Mary suggests a little later on, which is that... This is evidently a, an elaborate, carefully worked out plan to, to discredit an American citizen. Except that the officer's response to that sounds pretty sincere. Be careful, Miss Prescott. It doesn't help you to suggest that we stoop to such a trick. You attempted to smuggle a valuable jewel out of the country, and it's a very serious offense. Stick out! This all happens after they look at the watch, realize it does come from their country, and order Mary and Jan to come with them to what looks like a wooden shack. It's probably the custom officer's office at the train station. But they hold the train there as well, even though they've taken Mary and Jan off the train, because they later put them back on the same train. Whatever suspense there is in this episode comes at this time, where you have the lone American threatened with imprisonment by a totalitarian government. It's a pretty scary prospect, but it never feels all that threatening here, because Mary is so savvy and tough and well-connected. But this is outrageous. I tell you, this man gave me the watch. He told me his sister was ill in Munich, and he needed the watch to pay for an operation. Such stupid lies. My sister is not ill. She's a secretary at our Munich consulate. We know that, Jan. Have you anything else to say? Yes, I have. I want to get in touch immediately with the American ambassador. All in good time. We haven't quite finished with you yet. You bet you haven't. I also demand that you contact President Stuska. 
We shall see. Take them to the detention room. They then move from the shack across a little hallway to a jail cell. It's all one set with no fourth wall. So the camera just follows them from the custom officer's office to the hallway where we see a soldier apparently interrogating a man. He's looking at his passport. But they all look sort of bored. That doesn't look particularly threatening. And then on into the detention room. Already in there is a woman wrapped up in a blanket so that she looks a bit like the Virgin Mary from Michelangelo's Pieta. And the professor, who immediately protests his innocence to Mary. I was going to the convention, but they say that I'm trying to escape, that I bought my exit permit. I didn't. I only gave the official a small fee because he was courteous. I'm a loyal citizen, but they're going to put me into prison. We get a dissolve to show time passing, and then the officer comes in and takes the professor out. They go back over to the interrogation room, and it's really not that big a surprise to discover that the professor is not really a professor at all, but Captain Krusha of the secret police. There is an amusing little moment when the officer tries to light Captain Krusha's cigarette, only to find that the captain isn't quite ready yet. The customs officer is also in there, looking at the diamond watch with a jeweler's loop. Of course, we don't know how long he's been looking at it, but it does seem like a bit of a coincidence that he recognizes something significant about it just when they start to put in their call to President Stasca. Have you completed your investigation? Yes, Captain Krusha. Nothing in her luggage, nothing in the films. I see. This American woman puzzles me. Either she doesn't understand the danger she's in or she's depending upon the favor of the president. May I make a suggestion, Captain? I believe the president should be informed before we do anything further. Yes, I think it would be best. Put in an urgent call to His Excellency. Yes, sir. Hello, operator. Operator, Captain Krisha, Central Secret Police wishes to speak to His Excellency, the president. Wait a minute. The watch. The stones are plain imitations. What? They're not diamonds. Cancel the call. Hello? Never mind the score. Oh, there's no doubt. They are just superior rhinestones. Why should she smuggle rhinestones? I think I see. This American woman is trying to trick us. Oh. Can't you understand? She wanted us to arrest her. Then through her ambassador, she would prove this watch worthless. And she would bring ridicule on both our country and our president. I think we're fortunate that we found out in time. If our president finds out that we took her off the train and made all that fuss over nothing, we may be in hot water. I was up for promotion next month. I think we can outwit Miss Prescott. You will compliment her on her cleverness, laugh loudly, and then put her back on the train. I do like that one moment of humanity by the officer, moaning over the fact that he was due for promotion. But ultimately, what was it that Werner Klemperer said about Colonel Klink? He thought he should be portrayed as a fool who never succeeded? That's sort of how Captain Krusha comes across here. He might as well be Colonel Klink, falling for another one of Hogan's schemes. Okay, so if we were still wondering whether the detention room was on or off the train... We now know it was off the train, because the captain says... If our president finds out that we took her off the train and made all that fuss over nothing... And if we wondered whether the train was still there, we now know that it is, because the captain says... You will compliment her on her cleverness, laugh loudly, and then put her back on the train. That means that all the other people on the train, all those extras we saw in the dining car, for instance, 
have been sitting around cooling their heels just because Mary and Jan got taken off the train. But, you know, that's the sort of thing that happens to extras. Anyway, the officer and the customs officer do what the captain suggests, though they don't necessarily laugh all that loudly. You know, Miss Preston, I've heard a great deal about the American sense of humor, but to attempt to smuggle a worthless watch across a border, it's most unusual. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're just little devils at heart. <laughs> I'm afraid we have to leave you now, Miss Prescott. Uh, we do hope that you'll come back soon. I can hardly wait. Oh, yes, uh, your watch, please. Oh, you mean I get my watch back, too? Oh, yes. We want you to leave us with the pleasantest of memories. Of that you can be sure. I do like that collective sigh between the officer and the customs officer. They are glad to be rid of her. And now, I assume, we've entered West Germany. Mary is now in a nightgown and has converted one of the benches in her compartment into a bed. So I guess she still has a long way to go to get to Munich. There's a knock at her compartment door. Who is it? And it's Jan. It's time for an explanation, and it better be good. First of all, I want to thank you for what you have done for our anti-communist underground. Underground? Yes. I was instructed to take this train and win your confidence. Now we knew that they would find out that the watch had no value and they would have to release you. Mary asks the same things we'd ask. But why? I mean, what's the reason for all this? This. In this package are microfilms of the diary of Bishop Dresevs, written in his own hand during his last year in prison. Bishop Dresev was the man who just died a few months ago, just before his trial. Yeah, he died, conveniently, because he refused to sign the confession they had prepared for him. It is all here. And we want the whole world to know the truth of his persecution, torture, and death. But this is fantastic. Now, uh, the connection. By smuggling the watch and giving me the opportunity of denouncing you, attention was directed away from me entirely. I was not searched, and my luggage was not even opened. Now, you may be wondering, as Mary is... Why didn't you tell me? Because if you knew, you might not have given a... Convincing performance before the border officials. Okay, I guess that makes sense. But what about... Well, then, why didn't you give me the microfilm? I could have hidden it in my bag because my luggage was not going to be opened. As I told you, there was no guarantee that you were not going to be inspected and uh, thoroughly searched. And if they had found this package in your possession, you would have been guilty and nobody could have saved you. That one seems less convincing to me, what with Mary having these stickers on her luggage and the safe conduct pass and so on. But okay. So is the explanation good? Well, not really. I mean, it serves the purpose, but it ends up feeding us a whole lot of exposition at the end of the story. New information that we really should have known earlier on. And it all comes out in Mary's questions and Jan's answers, as if by rote. As if Andrew Salt is just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Still, even with this explanation, Jan has gone from a hero to a villain, and he has to go back to a hero again in a hurry. So maybe we'll add a little dash of chivalry. I uh, 
I wouldn't allow myself to put your life in danger. Even if you had wanted to. But your life was in danger. Yeah. This is your story. See to it that it is published all over the free world. Thank you, John. Oops. Did she just call him John? Thank you, John. That's probably just a slip-up. But I like to think that it's there intentionally to anglicize him and make him more identifiable to the American audience. And finally, in case there's any doubt that we've gone from a suspense story to a romance, we have the great sacrifice. They will never find out that uh, I had anything to do with it. However, to make sure, we must never see each other again. Not even in Munich. You see, there are too many secret agents around and... Uh, if they saw us together after what happened at the border, they might become suspicious. I understand. And I'll never forget you. Neither will I forget you. The maybe someday moment, along with the rise of the schmaltzy music. Maybe someday we'll meet again, without fear. I am working on it. And then the one-for-the-road kiss as the schmaltzy music takes us home. How do you say in America, one for the road? Let's look at our two leads. We've all heard stories about women who were discovered and put in films when they didn't necessarily plan on trying to get into films because of their looks. This seems to be the case as well with Jacques Bergerac. He was a law student when he met Ginger Rogers, who was vacationing in France. They formed a relationship, and she got him a screen test at MGM that led to them appearing together in the film Twist of Fate in 1954. By that time, they were married, but they divorced in 1957. In 1959, he married actress Dorothy Malone. They had two daughters, and they divorced in December 1964. His best-known films are George Cukor's Les Girls. Hey, you're Pierre, um, what's his name, aren't you? Uh, yes, I am. Come, come on in. Come on. I arrived this morning to, to surprise Angel. Oh, it's too bad you didn't come a minute earlier or you would have succeeded. And Vincenti Manelli's Gigi. Oh, Monsieur Lachai, what a surprise. I am honored. Don't speak. Come on. Get up. Wait, wait. You are making a mistake. It was just a coincidence, my meeting Madame here. Yeah, and it was a coincidence, I suppose, that your lips just happened to meet in a long, ardent, passionate... You keep out of this. His obituary in The Hollywood Reporter says... Bergerac also starred in the horror cult classic The Hypnotic Eye as a mysterious hypnotist who entrances women to gruesomely disfigure themselves. The film introduced hypno-magic, billed as an amazing new audience thrill that makes you part of the show. The effect had Bergerac's character Desmond looking directly into the camera and performing hypnotic suggestibility tests with the audience. What is your name? Dodie Wilson. I think you will make... A marvelous subject. Have you ever been hypnotized? 
No. All right, fine. Just relax. Just relax. You will do exactly as I tell you. In the 1960s, he appeared in a lot of TV situation comedies, like The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Beverly Hillbillies, Get Smart, The Lucy Show, and The Doris Day Show. And he has a small role in the very last episode of Batman. Freddy, I have some fast fencing for you to do. I am not known as the fat French Freddy the Fence for nothing, Minerva. Shortly, I have the combination of the Wayne Foundation world. And then you'll have the world's largest diamonds to fence. Famous diamonds are not uh, easy to fence, Minerva. <laughs> if I can get them, Freddy, you can fence them. I'm not even sure what that one line of his is. But he certainly seems less than enthused. So perhaps it's not surprising that just a few years after that, in 1969, he gave up acting and became an executive with the Revlon Cosmetic Company, where his brother Michel was president and chairman. He's in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The same two, as a matter of fact, co-written by Andrew Salt. So I wonder if there's some connection between the two men. His next is The Legacy, episode 35. And Jacques Bergerac died in 2014 at the age of 87. Claire Trevor was born Claire Wemlinger, and according to Wikipedia, she made her stage debut in the summer of 1929 with a repertory company in, of all places, Ann Arbor, Michigan. She starred on Broadway after that, and from 1933 to 1938, starred in 29 mostly unremarkable films. But in there, in 1937, was Dead End, for which she was nominated for an Academy Award. In that film... She appears opposite Humphrey Bogart as, according to the TCM website, a prostitute afflicted with syphilis, something that had to be discreetly communicated in the film due to then-current Hays Code restrictions. Listen, you've got to take care of yourself. What are you doing here anyway? You've got to get away. I don't want them to get you. What difference does it make where I go? they got the finger on me everywhere. Oh, but they won't recognize you. They won't. Even I didn't. Yeah, but you can't change these. Three times I find them with acid and things. It's no good. And I'm getting out of here. I come back for you. I wouldn't be good for you. I'll worry about that. It's a dream. I'm having a dream. What I've wanted for so long. I'm tired. I'm sick. Two years later, she played another hooker. This one with a heart of gold. In John Ford's Stagecoach. The film that made both her... And John Wayne. There's a cabin half built. A man could live there. And a woman. There you go. But you don't know me. You don't know who I am. I know all I want to know. There you go. Oh, don't talk like that. In 1937, Claire began a three-year stint on the radio show Big Town, along with Edward G. Robinson. The following year, she appeared with Robinson in a film I mention often, The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse, which also features Humphrey Bogart. The three will appear again in a notable film ten years later. But in the meantime, Claire began appearing in a series of films that gained her the nickname The Queen of Film Noir. As TCM puts it, 
beginning with her supporting part in Crossroads. Do you know, or did you know, a man by the name of Jean Pelletier? Yes. Where did you meet him? At the races. What was he doing? <laughs> Gambling on the races. What else? You were in love with him? Yes. Mademoiselle, when did you last see Jean Pelletier? On the night of March 27th, 1922. Where? At the railway station at Marseille. What was he doing? He was boarding the Marseille-Paris Express. And you never saw him again? No. Trevor also appeared in these sort of mystery thrillers for which she would be fondly remembered by film buffs. She was a femme fatale who sought her father's killer in Johnny Angel and the patient girlfriend of amnesia victim Pat O'Brien in Crack Up. While fine in those assignments, Trevor was really on fire when cast as noir heroines who were either innately bad or just unable to resist their impulses. She was a killer in Street of Chance, a young and dangerous gold digger in the Raymond Chandler adaptation of Murder, My Sweet. I'd like to get a few things straight. You hired me to get your necklace. You were going to help me. Okay, so you stand me up in a crummy rum joint... I'm sorry. ...and you tell Amther to pick me up and shake the necklace out of me. I don't get it. I'm sorry. I thought you might have it. What gave you that idea? Please don't blame me. You... you could have had it. Was it... was it bad? It almost made me mad. How long have you really known Amthor? I don't lie very well, do I? Well? Well, it's a long story and not very pretty. I got lots of time and I'm not squeamish. A divorcee who succumbed to the animal magnetism of psychopath Lawrence Tierney in Born to Kill. What does he do? Do you know? No. Well, what did you talk about all the way down on the train? Oh, my divorce, Reno. Helen, was it awful those six weeks? Wasn't what you'd call an enriching experience. Well, at least it was some kind of an experience. I never seemed to have any kind. I think, darling, you're just about to have one. And a gangster mall who aided her ex-con boyfriend in Raw Deal. However, the finest of her forays into the genre and one of Trevor's career highlights was the star-studded Key Largo, the notable film that I referred to before. Key Largo was directed by John Huston, and it stars Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, and Edward G. Robinson, who, as TCM puts it, played a notorious gangster who ducked the authorities by hiding out in a Key Largo hotel during a hurricane. Claire played his long-suffering alcoholic girlfriend, forced to endure Robinson's repeated abuse and reduced to performing pathetic indignities. Hello, everybody. Hi, fella. Where's Johnny? He's in there, getting dressed. I need a drink. What's everybody doing upstairs? Honey. Have you been crying? Why, has somebody been mean to you? Him? Did you make her cry? If you did, you ought to be ashamed. How about a little drink, huh? No, thanks. Oh, come on. I'll chase the blues away. No. I'll have one. The boss said... I don't care what the boss said. I need a drink. That role won her the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1948. And the winner, ladies and gentlemen, the winner is... Claire Trevor.
I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, this is one of the happiest moments of my life. And also that I have three boys, and I hope they grow up to be directors or writers so that they can give their old lady a job. <laughs> my love to my husband who gave me such encouragement. Thank you. She was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress in The High and the Mighty, a film that again starred John Wayne and featured our friends John Quaylen, Robert Newton, and Sidney Blackmer. How's AT&T? Oh, uh, it's up a point. I hope you don't mind. I, I couldn't help watching you. You remind me so much of a man I, I once knew. Well, my name is Ken Childs. And I don't mind at all. In 1957, she won an Emmy Award for her role in the producer's showcase adaptation of Sinclair Lewis's Dodsworth. And not long after that, she gave a memorable performance on The Untouchables as Ma Barker. Late in her career, she appeared in the romantic comedy Kiss Me Goodbye and made appearances on The Love Boat and Murder, She Wrote. And she died in 2000 at the age of 90. She has one other appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but it's a ways down the line. A Crime for Mothers, episode 16 of season 6. So, where do I stand on this episode? Well, even giving that red bashing was all the rage in 1950s America. I mean, look at Captain America commie smasher in the comics, or I was a communist for the FBI on the radio. Still... I'd have to label this episode a missed opportunity. The performances are fine, mostly. Claire Trevor in particular does wonders, conveying her thoughts in very subtle posture and facial expressions. Jacques Bergerac is admittedly a little over the top, but I still lay the blame on Andrew Soltz's unlikely script and Justice Addis's middle-of-the-road direction. Now, while I wouldn't go so far as to give it the Pie Lady's rating, I would say that any suspense it generates is drowned out by too much intrepid reporter versus evil commies and too much after-the-fact exposition and too much making the commies look like fools in the long run. As Hogan's Heroes proves, it's very hard to make the bad guy Germans both threatening and nincompoops. If we go directly to the outro as shown on the DVD, we see Hitch at the pool table. His eye patch is now flipped up so that he can use both eyes. I never did figure out what that eye patch was all about. And he says this to us. I'm sorry you didn't watch. You'll never believe me. Now, wait a minute. Watch what? Well, the reason we don't know what is because, once again, we're only getting the second half of the outro. Here's the first half, as written in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom. I hadn't expected that to be such a hair-raising story. I am about to undertake an extremely difficult shot. Since I'd rather you look the other way, I have talked a friend into offering this charming charade to divert you, after which I trust you'll return. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, Stagecoach, Born to Kill, Murder My Sweet, the High and the Mighty, Crossroads, Key Largo, Gigi, Les Girls, The Seventh Cross, The Wrong Man, The Twilight Zone, The Complete Third Season, Hogan's Heroes, The Complete First Season, Vertigo, Superman, Season 5, The Outer Limits, Season 1, Batman, The Complete Television Series, and The Simpsons Season 5 are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. 
Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech, Joseph Welch's No Sense of Decency speech, the Laurel and Hardy clips, the Hypnotic Eye, Operation Eichmann, the Playhouse 90 version of Judgment at Nuremberg, The Stranger, Dead End, Wages of Fear, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and Claire Trevor's Oscar-winning speech are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this episode, please email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. I recently heard from Nancy, who described herself as listener in Oregon, and she said, Hi, Al. Just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy your podcast. The deep dive they make into the episodes is fascinating, providing so many insights that I missed when I watched the show as a child. Every time I listen to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents... I wish I lived near Ann Arbor so that I could go to the library and check out some of the episodes you mention at the end of the podcast. Thanks again for all your fine work. Well, thank you, Nancy. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that you enjoy the deep dives. That's encouraging to hear because I sometimes wonder if I dive too deep. And while we would certainly welcome you here in Ann Arbor, I suspect that most of this stuff can be found in all sorts of places. But thanks again, Nancy. It's really nice to hear from you. I've also had a recent correspondence with Patrick Wickstrom, the co-author of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion. He gave me a rundown of things he's done since publishing the book. And he said, amongst other things, After the book, I had a break from Hitchcock for almost 10 years, since I got two sons born in 2002 and 2006. In 2008 to 2009, I started working on some corrections and additions for a possible new revision of the book. But then in 2010, my third son was born, and the new revision never happened, so I took another break from Hitchcock. Until this year, in fact. Hadn't almost seen any Hitchcock in almost 10 years. But then this year, a movie club here in Stockholm, Sweden, started a 2020 Hitchcock Festival, where they intend to show all Hitchcock movies available throughout the year. So then I decided to watch all Hitchcock-directed productions. And while watching them, I joined a Facebook Hitchcock group where someone mentioned your podcast. I have started listening to some of your episodes and was glad to hear that you seem to know what you're talking about. Not all do. So I thank Patrick for that, and I asked him if I could see his revisions, which he very kindly provided for me, and asked him if he would check as he was going through the episodes to make sure that I didn't make too many mistakes. Well, Patrick has already made it through all 20 episodes, and here is some of what he told me. First of all, the film that I've been calling The Paradigm Case should actually be the Paradine case. They refer to Mrs. Paradine all through the movie. And having seen the movie, I should have known that. Second, he let me know that in The Big Switch, I said that Mark Dana's next appearance would be in The Perfect Crime, episode 24. Well, Mark Dana's next appearance is in The Perfect Crime, but that is episode 3 of season 3. Episode 24 is The Perfect Murder. Third, he pointed out to me that I had a lapse and didn't list the first broadcast date for You Got to Have Luck, episode 16. So let's do it right, right here. So here's You Got to Have Luck. First broadcast, January 15th, 1956. 
starring John Cassavetes and Marissa Pavan. Teleplay by Eustace and Francis Cockrell. Based on a story by S.R. Ross and directed by Robert Stevens. Fourth, he noticed that in The Older Sister, episode 17, I said that Carmen Matthews died at the age of 81. She actually died at the age of 84. And finally, he pointed out that I played a clip in my review of The Derelicts, in which Donald Spoto, of all people, refers to Hitchcock's The Lodger as his first talking film. Donald Spoto certainly knows better. The Lodger is a silent Hitchcock's first talking film was Blackmail. Thank you, Patrick, for those corrections. It was great to hear from you. And if I've made any mistakes in this episode, please let me know. And speaking of mistakes, there was also an unfortunate glitch last time with my overly loud voice superimposed over an episode clip, for which I apologize. It has since been corrected. I lay the blame on working from home. Speaking of which, I hope everyone out there is safe and healthy and continues to stay so. Next time, episode 22, Place of Shadows, starring Everett Sloan. Now let's finish up with Hitch, but I am going to interrupt him a couple of times. First, to describe the action, and second, to add a little snippet of a line about the sponsor left out of this version of his outro. And then I will talk to you next time. Now I'm sorry you didn't watch. You'll never believe me. A three-cushion shot. It tarmed off the ceiling, floor, and wall, and into the side pocket. He reaches into his pants pocket and pulls out an eight ball, dropping it on the pool table where it bounces. Because it's a rubber ball. Next week at this time, we shall all return. Our mamas to offer you their usual 26 minutes of drama. The sponsor with his three minutes of commercials. And, of course, I shall be back to lay my customary one-minute egg. Good night.